Chapter Thirty Three of Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louis Malbach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers in Columbia, Tennessee. Chapter Thirty Three After Long Wanderings. For the city of Paris, the sixteenth of February, eighteen o four, was a day of terror. The gates remained closed the whole day. Military patrols passed through the streets at whose corners the proclamations were posted by which Marat, the governor of Paris, announced to the city that fifty assassins were within the walls, intent on taking the life of the first consul. The condemned surgeon, Cairol, had meantime made his confession, and named the heads of the conspiracy and their accomplices, and, only after all the persons mentioned by him were arrested, were the gates of the city opened. A great trial then commenced of the men who had been sent by the Bourbons for this nefarious purpose. Among the accused were General Pichegru, the abettor of Georges, and General Moureau, the most prominent of all. The history of this trial was enveloped in obscurity, and it was faintly whispered that Pichegru had taken his own life in prison, and more faintly yet was it rumored that he was secretly dispatched in prison. And then, on one of these days, there were to be seen all through Paris only pale, sad faces, and a murmur of horror ran through all the streets and all the houses. The story was current that the Duc d'Anghien, the grandson of the Prince de Condé, had been arrested by French soldiers at Baudin, beyond the frontier, and had been brought to Vincennes, that he was accused there that same night of being an accomplice in a plot to take the life of the first consul and to disturb the peace of the republic, that he was quickly condemned by a court-martial and shot before morning within the fortress of Vincennes. The report was only too true. Bonaparte had kept his word. He had sacrificed a royal victim to the threatened cause of the republic. He would, by one deed of horror, fill the conspirators with fear, and cause them to abandon their bloody plans. The means employed were cruel, but the end was reached which Bonaparte hoped to attain, and thenceforth there were no more conspiracies against the life of the first consul, who, on the 18th of May that same year, declared himself emperor. A few days after this, the public trial of the accused began, which Fouché attended as a reinstalled minister of police, and over which Reigny presided in his new capacity of chief judge. Seventeen of those indicated were condemned to death, others to years of imprisonment, and among these was General Moureau. But the popular voice declared itself so loudly and energetically for the brave general of the Republic that it was considered expedient to heed it. Moreau was released from prison and went to the Spanish frontier, whence he sailed to North America. On the 25th of June, twelve of the conspirators, Georges at their head, were executed. The other five, who had been condemned to death, had their sentence commuted to banishment. The gentle, kind-hearted Josephine viewed all these things with sadness, for her power over the heart of her husband was waning, and the sun of her glory had set. Her prayers and tears had no longer a prevailing influence over Bonaparte, and she had not been able to avert the death of the Duc d'Anghien. 
I have tried all means, she said with tears, to Bourrienne, the chief secretary of the emperor. I wanted at all costs to turn him aside from his dreadful intention. He had not apprised me of it, but you know in what way I learned it. At my request he confessed to me his purpose, but he was steeled against my prayers. I clung to him. I fell on my knees before him. Do not meddle with what is none of your business, he cried angrily as he pushed me away from him. These are not women's affairs. Leave me in peace. And so I had to let the worst come, and could do nothing to hinder it. But afterward, when all was over, Bonaparte was deeply affected, and for several days he remained sad and silent, and scolded me no more when he found me in tears. The days passed by, the days of splendor, and then followed for Josephine the days of misery and grief. Repelled by Napoleon, she mourned four years over her spurned love and her ruined fortunes. But then, when Napoleon's star went down, when he was robbed of his imperial crown and compelled to leave France, Josephine's heart broke, and she hid herself in her grave in order not to witness Napoleon's humiliation. And thus the empire was abolished, and the Count de Lille, called back by foreign potentates, and not by the French nation, in order, as Louis the Eighteenth, to re-erect the throne of the Lilies. And where all this time was the son of Queen Marie Antoinette? Where was Louis Seventeenth? He had kept his word which he gave to Josephine. He had gone to the primeval forest and to the savages, and they had given him a crown of feathers and made him their king. For years he lived among them, honored as their king, loved as their hero. Then a longing for his country seized him, and going to Brazil in the service of his people, he made use of the opportunity to enter into a contract with Don Juan, and not return to his copper-colored tribe. The precious treasure which he possessed, his papers, he had been able to preserve all during the journeys and amid all the perils of his life and these papers procured him a hospitable and honorable reception with Don Juan. From him the king without name or inheritance learned the changes that had meanwhile taken place in France, and at the first opportunity which offered, he returned to Europe, arriving at Paris in the middle of the year, 1816. The Prince de Condé, now the Duc de Bourbon, received the wanderer with tenderness, but with deep regret, for now it was too late, and his hope for a restoration of the returning prince could rest on no basis. The Count de Provence was now King Louis the Eighteenth, and never would he descend from his throne to give back to the son of Marie Antoinette that crown which he wore with so much satisfaction and pride. Much more simple and easy was it to treat the pretender as a lunatic or as an adventurer, and to set his claims aside forever. Useless were all the letters which the Baron de Richemont, the name that Louis still bore, addressed to his uncle the king, to his sister the Duchess de Anglume, imploring them for an interview. No answer was received. No audience was granted to this adventurer whose claims could not be recognized without dethroning Louis the Eighteenth 
and destroying the prospects of the crown for the duchess's son the duc de berry louis seventeenth had died and he could not return to the living he saw it he knew it and a deep sorrow took possession of him but he rose above it he would not die he would live a terror and an avenger to his cruel relatives but it was a restless life that the son of the queen must lead in order to protect himself from the daggers of his powerful enemies the prince de conde conjured him to secure himself against the attacks which were more than once upon the baron de richemont and louis gave heed to his requests and tears he travelled abroad but after returning in two years from a journey in asia and africa on landing on the italian coast he was arrested in eighteen eighteen at the instigation of the austrian ambassador at mantua and confined in the prison of milan seven years the unhappy prince spent in the austrian prison without once being summoned before a judge seven years of solitude of darkness and of want but the son of marie antoinette had learned in his youth to bear these things and his prison life in milan was not so cruel as that in the temple under simon here there were at least sympathizing souls who pitied him even the turnkeys of the prison were courteous and kind when they entered the cell of the king of france and one day beyond the wall of his apartment was heard a voice singing in gentle melodious tones a romanza which louis had composed and written on the wall when he occupied the neighboring cell this voice which sounded like a greeting from the world was that of silvio pellico the celebrated author of Mi prigione relates in touching words this salutation of his neighbor my bed was carried he said into the new cell that was prepared for me and as soon as the inspectors had left me alone my first care was to examine the walls there were to be seen there some words recollections of the past written with chalk with pencil or with a sharp tool i found there also two pretty french lines which i am sorry i did not copy i began to sing them to my melody of the poor mongdalen when a voice near me responded with another air when the singer ended i called out bravo he replied with a polite salutation and asked me if i was french no i am italian and am called silvio pelico the author of francesca da ramini yes the same and now there followed a courtly compliment with the usual regrets for my imprisonment he asked in what part of italy i was born and when i told him in saluzzo in piedmont he awarded the piedmontese some words of high praise and spoke particularly of bodoni his compliments were brief and discriminating and disclosed a finely cultivated mind and now sir said i allow me to ask you who you are you were just singing a song that i wrote these pretty verses here upon the wall are they yours yes they are you are therefore the duc de normandy the watchman was just then walking past my window and so i was still after some time we resumed our conversation when i asked whether he was louis the seventeenth he responded in the affirmative and began to declaim hotly against louis eighteenth his uncle the usurper of his rights i implored him to give me his history in brief outlines 
he did so and related to me all the details connected with the life of louis the seventeenth which i knew only in part he told me how he had been imprisoned with simon the cobbler been compelled to sign a culminating charge against his mother etc he then related to me the story of his escape and his flight to america of his return to reclaim the throne of his fathers and his arrest in mantua he portrayed his history with extraordinary life all the incidents of the french revolution were present before him he spoke with natural eloquence and wove in piquant anecdotes very apropos his manner of expression smacked once in a while of the soldier but there was no lack of the elegance that disclosed his intercourse with good society will you allow me i asked him to treat you as a friend and leave off all titles i want exactly that he answered misfortune has taught me the good lesson to despise all the vanities of earth believe me my pride does not lie in this that i am a king but that i am a man after this we had long conversations morning and evenings and i recognized in him a noble beautiful soul sensitive to all that is good he knew how to win hearts and even the turnkeys were kind to him one of them said to me on coming from the cell of my neighbour i have strong hopes that he will make me chief porter when he is king i have had the boldness to ask him for the position and he has promised it to the veneration of the turnkeys for the king of the future i owe it that one day when i was led to trial and had to pass by his cell they opened the doors that i might see my illustrious friend he was of medium size from forty to forty-five years of age somewhat imponent and had a thoroughly bourbon physiognomy after seven years of imprisonment the gates opened at last for the baron de richemont and he who had been placed there without the sentence of a judge was released with as little show of authority the son of the queen was free again the death of king louis the eighteenth had restored him to the walks of men but another king of france assumed his place at once and the count d'ortois ascended the throne under the title of charles the tenth the poor baron de richemont bore his sorrows and his humiliation into the valleys of switzerland but when in the year eighteen thirty king charles the tenth abdicated the throne the son of marie antoinette again came forth from his solitude issued a proclamation to the french people and in the presence of all europe demanded his inheritance yet amid the clash of weapons and the roar of revolutions the voice of the unfortunate prince was overborne he had no soldiers no cannon to enforce silence and make himself be heard but the duc d'orleans louis philippe had soldiers and cannon and the arms of his dependents and the magic of his wealth placed him upon the throne in july eighteen thirty the poor baron de richemont the son of kings the last of the bourbons in france had now a single friend who perhaps would receive him this friend was the duc de bourbon conde now an old man of eighty years one day some weeks after the ascension of louis philippe the duc de bourbon received at his palace of saint louis a gentleman whom nobody knew who announced himself as a baron de richemont the duke went out into the anteroom, greeted his guest with the greatest deference, and led him into his cabinet. There the two gentlemen carried on a long and earnest conversation, and the secretary of the duke, who was at work in the library hard by, 
distinctly heard his master say with trembling tones, "'Sire, I implore you, forgive me. The circumstances were stronger than my will. Sire, go not into judgment with me. Forgive me.' To this an angry voice replied, "'No, I will not forgive you, for you have dealt perfidiously with the son, as you did once with the mother. You have not redeemed the oath that you once gave me. I leave you. May God be gracious to you and pardon you. Take care that he does not punish you for the treachery that you have shown to me. You swore that you would acknowledge no other king but me, and yet you have taken your oath to the third king. Farewell. May the Almighty protect you. We shall see each other perhaps in a better world, and there you will have to give your account to a judge whom nothing can mitigate. Be happy, and may the dead sleep in peace. The secretary then heard the forcible closing of a door, and all became still. After an hour he entered the duke's cabinet, because the silence troubled him. The old duke sat in his armchair, pale, and gazing with constant looks at the door through which the stranger had departed. He was reticent the whole day, and in the night following his valet heard him softly praying and weeping. On the next morning, August the 27th, 1830, on entering the sleeping room of his master, he found him dead and already rigid. The duke had hanged himself at the window of his own room. The last dependent of the unhappy king, who still bore the name of the pretender, was dead, as were all his relations, including his sister, the Duchess de Angleme. But from the dead there came a greeting. She had ordered a large sum to be paid yearly to the Baron de Richemont, and the report was that she wished to recognize him on her deathbed as her brother. But her confessor had counseled her that such a recognition would introduce new contentions among the Bourbons, and given the pretender Henry V equal claims with Louis the Seventeenth. Yet the Duc de Normandie was not silent. He spoke so loudly of his rights, though Louis-Philippe at last held it advisable to arrest him and bring him to trial. The preliminary investigation continued fifteen months. Then he was brought before the court and accused of conspiracy against the safety of the state. The Gazette des Trubignons of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th of November, 1834, gave the details of this trial. Spectators poured in from all sides, and also, in an unexpected manner, witnesses who declared themselves ready to prove the identity of the Baron de Richemont with the Duc de Normandie, son of Louis the Sixteenth. The accused appeared entirely calm and dignified before the bar, and when the counsel for the government accused him of appropriating a name that did not belong to him, he asked quietly, "'Gentlemen, if I am not Louis the Seventeenth, will you tell me who I am?' No one knew how to reply to this question, but many eminent legitimists had come to solely declare that the accused was in truth their king, and that he was the rescued orphan of the temple. Even the president of the court seemed to be convinced of this, and his closing words in addressing the jury were these, "'Gentlemen, who is the accused who stands before you today? What is his name, his lineage, his family? What are his antecedents, his whole history? Is he an instrument of the enemies of France, or is he, much more, 
an unfortunate who has miraculously escaped the horrors of a bloody revolution and laid under banes by his birth has now no name and no refuge for his head the jury however were not called upon to answer this question they had simply to reply to the question whether the accused was guilty of a conspiracy against the state this they answered with a guilty and condemned the accused to an imprisonment of twelve years the duc de normandy or king louis charles as we may choose to call him was taken to saint pelagie but during the next year through the assistance of powerful friends which his trial had gained over to him he was released from prison and again spent some quiet years in switzerland then came the year eighteen forty eight the year of revolutions whose storm waves drove louis philippe to england never to ascend again the throne of france again louis charles issued from his solitude and this time not alone a swarm of rich and powerful legitimists thronged around him a journal la flexible was secured to the interest of the duc de normandy and la vende with a thousand loyal voices summoned king louis the seventeenth to herself there as he was on the point of hastening to his faithful ones god laid his hand upon him and held him back a stroke of paralysis crippled his limbs after recovering from this attack the strength of his mind was taken away and the decided fiery indefatigable pretender became a gentle pious monk who fasted and prayed and wandered to rome to have an interview with pope pius the ninth and received absolution from him for all his sins the pope met the duc de dormande at gaeta on the twentieth of february eighteen forty nine and had a long and secret conversation with him and when louis charles withdrew it was as a quiet pious smiling man who never denied his high extraction but who had no longer a wish to be restored to the inheritance of his fathers more and more he withdrew from the world and lived only in the circle of a few noble-born legitimists who had never addressed him excepting as sire he accepted the title as one that was his due and never refused it even when approached by many adherents of the new napoleonic dynasty at that time he wrote to his friends you ask me what i wish what the end of my struggle is which has now lasted more than half a century i will tell you you do not suppose i trust that i am still determined to ascend the throne of france to do this would be a great misfortune for me but it would certainly be a greater one for france and it would rightly be said of both of us that we merit our misfortune still less do i hope to attain to wealth and high station by being recognized you know that i need very little for my support and that this little is amply provided for what else should i strive for to avenge myself my friend i am at an age when the blood flows slower through the veins and when one finds an inexpressible charm in forgiving what then do i wish what could i have why do i incessantly strive this is the reason my friend i should like before my death to convince all who have disinterestedly believed in me that it is not a political adventurer 
but the royal orphan of the temple who owes them his friendship and gives them his gratitude and this last goal of his life was within his reach the friends and legitimists who surrounded him believed in him and when he died his dependents and servants mourned for him as for a departed king they bore him with solemn pomp to his grave at the dead of night some fifty persons followed his coffin and a priest went before it he was buried in the churchyard villefranche and his tombstone bears the following inscription here rest louis charles of france born at versailles march the twenty seventh seventeen eighty five died in the chateau of Vourneau, august the tenth eighteen fifty eight End of chapter 33. Recording by Maggie Travers in Columbia, Tennessee. End of Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Malbach.